If I were to go up into a supermarket and ask a lady what is she doing there, and she has half of her shopping cart filled with groceries, I imagine she would be very easily disconcerted, irritated, a little upset. It's rather obvious what she's doing. But if I said, why, do you ever play the game as kids? You know, that English word, why, never is satisfied. If you just keep on and on, you can finally reduce someone to virtual gibberish by asking them, why are you doing that? Well, I'm doing that to take the groceries home to feed my family and my children. Why? Well, because I'm the wife and because I'm, I do the shopping and because I, I love my family and my children. Why? Well, because of all that they do for me. And you know what I mean. You just go on and there is no end to asking this question, why? Sometimes children do that and drive their parents to absolute distraction. If you were to ask an astronaut in the space program down in Houston, why he is in this kind of a centrifuge machine, or why he is going through pressure tests in little submerged capsules beneath water in a big tank, or why he has to become a very professional fighter pilot or jet jockey, or why he has to go through all of these routines to learn to do what he is doing, he would tell you, well, because he wants to become an astronaut. Well, why do you want to become an astronaut? Well, to become a part of NASA's space program and to be one of those very rare and privileged individuals who gets to tread the very threshold of outer space and to advance man's knowledge and to contribute information about where we came from and how the universe was made and approximately when. Well, why? And you can keep asking these questions, and pretty soon, in nearly every case, no matter who you're talking to, from an astronaut to a housewife in a shopping market, they're simply going to run out of answers and get very exasperated. But if they began to ask you that question, like, why do you go to church on Saturday? Or why are you here today? Or why do you wash feet on the Passover? Or why do you believe the things you do? It would be interesting to track down that ultimate answer as to why you do it. Well, you know, I believe that because my parents believed it. A lot of people think of me that I inherited or I grew up being taught my father's religion. And they don't know that that is absolutely untrue, that I rejected it, I ran away from it, I didn't know anything about it, I didn't want anything to do with it. I used to go to great lengths to tell people that I will not be a member of the church that my dad is the head of, and et cetera, et cetera. And I rebelled. Of course, they claim that I'm still doing that, but that's not true. That's just a word that they use. But I rebelled against my dad and religion when I was a very young person, and especially in my later teenage. I had to come to it with a great obstacle, saying to myself, how can my dad know anything the way all of us have gone through our teenage experience when for a period of time we suddenly discover we know infinitely more than our parents do? And our parents are so dumb and so ignorant from the time we're about 16 until we're about 21 or 2. And then in about one or two years, we become absolutely dumbfounded at how much our parents have learned in the span of maybe a year or two. They've just come up with immense knowledge. By the time we're in our middle 20s, we begin to discover they knew a lot more than we thought they did. So I had quite an obstacle. And I had to begin learning, and I didn't necessarily learn at my father's feet because I began reading a lot of other literature written by other church leaders prior to reading anything my father ever wrote. 
I had read some of Mrs. E.G. White's books, not all of them, but read portions of the books on doctrines and picked up Mormon literature and Church of Christ and Baptist pamphlets and literature before I ever read The United States in Prophecy. And that was the first book that I ever read. And I believe the second one I ever read was the one on baptism. And I didn't read those till I was about 23 or 4 years of age. I had never paid a bit of attention to them as a younger person. And so eventually as I began to compare... And I began to deal with the word, why? Why are we here? I guess my father is the champion of that question. He has asked that for decades. Why are we here? Why were we put on the earth? Where are we going? What is human life all about? Now, before you go to sleep, as I repeat those words, because many of you have heard them for hundreds of, of sermons, no doubt, let's contemplate that ultimate question for a moment. In the mind's eye of the way we would ask that question to a Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran or Catholic or Episcopalian. Let me draw an analogy from a couple of recent programs. I live in a retirement community. Probably half of the people out there are retired. Living near me is a retired Air Force Brigadier General. If you were to put that man in his uniform today, he has those craggy features. He's a little wrinkled now with age, a little more stooped than I'm sure he used to be, but he still has that military carriage. His wife is certainly a very vivacious, uh, go get em live-wire kind of a lady in that community. She sells real estate, etc., and you could just hear from her speech that she was a military wife for many, many years, living on the base and, of course, keeping her position in the pecking order of the military strata on one base after another, while her husband rose from the rank of captain to bird colonel to brigadier general. In the days that he was wrestling an F-105 or an F-86 before those days around the skies over Korea, or flying one of the old Mustangs in escorting some of our bomber attacks over Berlin in World War II. I imagine if you'd have seen him, especially if you'd have been the frightened young pilot of an ME-109 seeing a, an F-51 behind you with six guns blazing, and had seen the hawkish look coming out of that face of his, of an actual trained expert killer, almost one with his machine, and now you would see this apparently wrinkled, tired old guy out there that I see, you know, on the golf course, or digging around in the, in the begonias or the petunias out there in his flower bed, or down there for dinner with a group of other people, or as my wife and I did one afternoon sharing a little trip out on the lake on a little barge with them and some other couples who would invite us along, just a harmless-looking, everyday, older man. I've seen, and I know an awful lot of older people, we have a lot of them here with us today, and what I'm about to say about retirement is by no means an attack against anyone. But let's consider the entire subject of retirement as it applies in our society today. Here are people of corporate business, people who have been working, whether it's on an assembly line in a factory, a smaller business may be their own business where they have had to really stick it out in tough times and learn a great deal and come to understand all of the aspects of managing a business, of manufacturing, of marketing, of distribution, of how to handle their personnel, of studying books perhaps about management, people up in their 60s. And yet by the time they get to be 65 to 75, they tend to all have a kind of a monotonous sameness. I see them by the hundreds down here in the mall or down at the cafeteria if you want to go over and eat lunch someday at Luby's. You see these people I'm talking about. 
If you come out where I live, you see these people I'm talking about. You see a guy stooped over, shuffling along with his wife. You don't have the faintest idea that he was one of those guys with a Bangalore torpedo that made it up to the wire and blew a hole in it after storming ashore at Normandy. You don't have the faintest idea that he was a guy that came back with 11 frightened Germans at the point of a bayonet after he was out with his squad in reconnaissance one night because he's just an old, stoop-shouldered, gray-haired man. Just one more person in our society that we tend to shunt aside and stick into a corner and farm out to a senior citizen's village or put them in an old folks' home. And as most younger middle-aged people do, just basically never visit them, never pay any attention to them, write or call very seldom. And the elderly, the grandparents in our society, generally tend to be shunted aside and the younger generation really has no time for them. Now, in the military service, and of course because of the physical demands of a person who is the captain of an aircraft carrier, or perhaps a person who is over a division of armored uh, uh, personnel, maybe in, uh, in one of the major uh, divisions of an army, there are tremendous physical rigors and requirements. So obviously, at a certain age, they are automatically retired. Now, the higher you go, the less easy it is to get rid of them, like old Admiral Hyman Rickover. He was still going strong up at about age 80 and able to tell the President and Congress what he thought. Pretty crusty old gentleman, frankly, I believe, with about 95% of what he said. But basically, they simply retire them at a certain age. The same is true in corporate business. People get to be about 65, they work for a very big company like Ma Bell or Ford or Chrysler, GM. They're 65, they're retired. And off they go with a little office party, maybe a gold-plated watch, been nice knowing you, John, we'll see you later. They go out and buy a chicken farm and they die in three days of a heart attack. An awful lot of people have done that because uh, a sudden change in their routine and they don't last very long. So you begin to wonder, why is it in our society that the people who have gained all this experience, people who have built their own businesses from scratch, this ex-Air Force general who has so much knowledge in his head about the way it was in World War II, about the changing tactics for the advent of jet aircraft, about what happened in Korea, about the nonsensical policy and the strategy at the top that said you can bomb the river bridges over the Yalu, but you've got to bomb them from the side. You can't bomb them along the length of the bridge because in making your turn you would be over communist North Korea, and that isn't allowed. And what they might have to say about fighting a war with one hand tied behind your back and about trying to bring an enemy to the conference table by, quote, leaning on him and committing troops like so much cannon fodder piecemeal to a battle, little by little, in order to try to play king of the mountain with an enemy as we did in Korea and as we did in Vietnam. But because those older people, including Stilwell, who warned the American Congress that the United States should never get involved in a land war in Asia, because they are not used because their knowledge and their experience is never utilized, but they're simply said, you know, we, we farm you out, we'll say goodbye, we'll see you later. And the lessons of the past are not learned and not used for the younger generation. Huge mistakes are made. The analogy I'm drawing, and what it has to do with a question we might ask a Presbyterian, a Catholic, or a Baptist, has to do with what the Christian life is all about. 
There is such incredible short-sightedness in the religion to this world, it is unbelievable. Now, as I briefly touched on the radio program, let's ask it this way. I don't know how many of you enjoy harp music. I remember one restaurant in Pasadena, I think the only place I've been to in my life, where they had a lady who played the harp. I guess we went there twice before we quit going there, but uh, I've heard a harp a time or two in a symphony orchestra, something like that, but really to listen to them very long, uh, they're a little boring. But let's say that uh, you try to go to a music store, one of the biggest ones in New York, and lay your hands on virtually every piece of music that has ever been written for the harp. Now, I don't know whether you'd have one little portfolio that thick or whether you'd have a file cabinet that big, but there would be so much music and no more going back to the 15th, 16th century and the development of the harp, of harp music, and that's all you could avail yourself of. Now, after old Maud and Henry, who went to heaven during the second invasion of Shalmaneser before Sargon took the throne in about 506 B.C. or whatever, have been up there in heaven, and they've been playing that harp now from about the 6th century before Christ, interminably, from that time until this time. How long did it take them? Of course, maybe harps weren't even invented when you really think about it. Then they had the lyre or the lute. It wasn't even the big harp that we know of. It can be adjusted today for tone. But then it was just the little lyre like David played on. And how much music they had, I don't really know. And I think it tended to be more of a monotone and not really the, the very intricate uh, sounds that you can get out of a harp the way we know them, the big harps of concert orchestras today. Can you imagine a conversation some sunny afternoon? Of course, it never rains, and the sun always shines in heaven anyway. On an afternoon, they're sitting in their gilded front porch with the streets of diamonds and the porticos of gold. And... Uh, she is saying, Henry, he says, yes, Maud, well, couldn't you please uh, go back and, and, and do that number you did, I think it was about uh, 2,947 years ago there from uh, that one stack of harp music. I used to adore that number, but the one you're playing now, I mean, you've only played it 6,937,432 times, and I'm really getting a little tired of that particular kind of harp music. Now, Many of you, how many of you ever have been in a Protestant church? I'm sure the bulk, I have. I mean, I've been to Protestant churches. I used to go with a little friend of mine that went to the Lutheran church. And I've heard Lutheran preachers. And I've heard, I went to a high mass with, a, I used to go, you know, I knew where to meet girls, good girls, when I was in the Navy, was to go to Catholic church. And uh, they would always, always seat you. They did to me when I was in my uniform. They'd say, come on, I'll put you down. The deacons always knew where the sailor wanted to be sat down, so I'd go to the big Catholic church in San Francisco on a Sunday when I was off the ship. I never did, I don't think I ever dated one of those Catholic girls, but it was a whole lot better than simply walking the streets. So I have been there, and I've watched all of these funny gestures. I didn't know what they were doing, but of course most of the Catholics didn't either. Only the priests did. And they go through all of these gestures, and they talk about getting into heaven. But you know, you've been to some of these services, and you've heard about going to heaven. But how many times beyond the idea of mansions and golden streets and living forever and basically, you know, being happy and so on, how many times have you ever heard about what they do in heaven? I mean, what they do for the first ten years, let's say, and then after that for the next ten years, and what you're doing after one hundred years in heaven, and what do you do for twenty thousand? years. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I get absolutely bored to death after just a few hours of television, or a few hours of typing, or a few hours of dictation, or a few hours of just sitting in the same position in a chair. Of course, we're not going to have old bones to ache when we're in heaven, the way they tell it. That's where we're supposed to go, which we're not. But basically, you get bored to death by doing the same thing monotonously all the time. Now, the way the churches tell it, the reward of the saved is nothing more than Christian retirement. Notice what Jesus says about how we enter into the kingdom of God. And I'll just quote a few scriptures right quickly to show you how absolutely, ridiculously short-sighted the churches of this world really are. He, he said it is through much tribulation we must enter into the kingdom of God. We know that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now that bothers some people because if Jesus had been in one of his moments of sorrow, people might have come to him and said, well, cheer up, aren't you supposed to be just effervescent and ebullient and bouncing around with happiness all the time? No, no, there are moments, very serious moments, even in the life of a Christian, when you're in a deep valley of your life, you know, your life can be peaks and valleys. And any life is just like the, the uh, income chart for a business or like the American financial indebtedness and so on, it has a whole lot of peaks and valleys. Now, hopefully, that the general trend, if you draw a line from top of the peak to the top of the peak, you hope that the peaks are gradually going upward in a Christian life, and that all, there are valleys all the way, but you hope that the valleys are growing shallower and shallower and not you know, going deeper and deeper all the time, and that your general direction of development is upward, but as you go along that rocky, rutty, narrow, difficult way of heartache and of disappointment and of a cold or two and a flu or two once a year and a good, horrible running off at both ends to go along with it and uh, fevers and sickness and, and worry about youngsters and visits to the dentist and we chat about those little things, but they bother us, wondering how many rentgens we're getting as they want to shoot uh, pictures of the x-ray of our teeth, and then we wonder, you know, whether our hair is falling out or we're getting blotches, and what is that, and what's this nervous twitch, and does that have anything to do with the uh, x-rays I got? In other words, the day-to-day -day problems and the routines of all of us on those moments other than in church on the Sabbath with our nice Sabbath day face, our nice Sabbath day clothing, our best suit and tie and on on and, and here we are and this is the good moment that we enjoy together. But you know, it's just like those people you see on television. What is her name? Tammy? And the little guy with a mouth about that wide that, that, uh, that smiles all the time. Now, I literally mean I have never in my life seen a total of five minutes. I, that's true. That's my wife. Of, the, of that program, I may have seen an, an agglomerate or an agglomeration or whatever, an aggregation of maybe two and a half minutes of it. But that's because I have nearly broken both legs rushing to the TV to turn that thing off if it ever comes on. And I can't help it when I'm down doing my own television program in Channel 7, if they've got it on and I have to walk by that thing and I glance at it for a moment or two, those accumulated moments may or may not add up to about two and a half minutes of viewing that stuff. Some people tend to think that what they see on that TV program is the way those folks are all the time. I mean, it's like Oz, you know, it's like Wonderland. And those people are just bouncing around and they're bubbly and they're happy and they're crying about Jesus all the time. No, they're not. They're acting. 
they get up, you know, into this big high for the moment those cameras are on them. And the rest of their lives, let me tell you, some of them are so far down, and some of those people are involved in the heartache, and some of them in illegal and unlawful and unspiritual activities, that it would practically blow your mind. And when you begin to hear from the memoirs and the diaries and a little later on the court case or the people that begin to kind of spill the beans about the private lives and about the chicanery and about the dishonesty and the crumbling empires and the great monuments that were built by these people, you begin to realize, hey, they put on a television face. And we were, we were hoodwinked. We were mesmerized. We began to think these people were that way all the time. Well, no, they're not. And a Christian life is not up all the time. It has its valleys. It has its deep downs. It has its moments of frustration. Jesus very plainly said so. The way that leads to life, to remind us of those statements, very, very rocky, narrow, rutty, and difficult. If there are few, if there are few who are saved, and it says, if the righteous barely or scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Making it appear that the righteous barely squeak through. That today, in this time, when Satan the devil is our number one enemy, maybe we ourselves are our number one enemy and he's our second, it would be difficult to say, but between our own carnal human nature and Satan the devil, that's enemy number one, and the world around us and all of the temptations and the pulls of human physical appetites, we've got a pretty rough road to hoe. A lot of us are Christian in the same way that our lights in our homes are on. Right now, I hope you left them off while you're away from home. You go home and they're there and you turn them on and then the current begins to flow and the little wheel outside is slowly turning around. I always have the vision to try to save energy in my home. I go around turning out lights all the time. I have a fetish about that because I'm thinking of that little wheel out there. And the faster that little wheel's going around, the more money is draining out of my pocket. So if I can slow that little dude down, I can probably save a little bit of money. So every time I go by and there's a lamp or a light in the hallway that is on, I don't need it on, I turn it off. The minute I leave a room, I'll knock the lights off of that room. It doesn't need to be on just to keep me company. But you know, we're like that. The current may be there. There's a reservoir of current immediately available, but we're not glowing all the time. Sometimes a switch is engaged and we light up and we glow and we can really put out for the sake of other people and be concerned with them. We can show a little bit of love to our people, but much of the time we don't do that. It just kind of comes and goes. Now, if Jesus said that this spiritual fight of ours, and it's called a battle, and our very symbol, our shield that you can see on the pulpit here, about the armor of God shows that it is a spiritual warfare. We learn of our weapons in 2 Corinthians 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. How we have to outwit our own selves. We have to outflank ourselves. Uh, we have to go to war against ourselves. The Apostle Paul said, So fight I, not as one, you know, who is doing it in vain, but I have to keep in subjection my own body, lest after I preach to others and tell them all these wonderful things, I myself should be found a castaway. Paul recognized he could preach his whole life to people and tell them how they ought to live, and then he himself could slip up, and he can't turn around, and I take that very personally, and say to God, Look, Father, I preached all these wonderful sermons. 
I wrote all those articles, did all those television programs, did all those broadcasts. Yeah, but what about you personally? What have you done? So Paul knew it was a fight, and he described it as a fight. And Peter talked about weapons, and he said, Our enemy is as a roaring lion, and maybe we're only armed with a sword and a shield and a helmet. We don't have a longbow or a crossbow. So there's a fight, and there's a struggle. So he also said you're going to suffer rejection. He prophesied that even your own family members will virtually spit in your eye. Now why? Why is it so rough, and why is it so tough, why is it so difficult, if all you're going to do when it's all over and said and done is retire? There's nothing to do. The minute you get into this heaven they describe, and I would dare say you could ask 10,000 so-called Christians, and they have never heard a sermon of what it's going to be like for the first 10 years in heaven. They've never heard any description of what do you do when you go there? What do all those other folks do when they're up there? What's going on in heaven right now today? I mean, forget Mrs. E.G. White and investigative judgment and sweeping out the corners that get a little bit dusty. That's nonsense from a poor woman who was, of course, a plagiarist and therefore a liar, and she does lie in her uh, books, which I plainly stated in one of the articles that I wrote recently. So we won't apologize for her. We'll let her apologize for herself. There are many religious liars around the world these days. Why, if we are to enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation, and the time is going to come when they that will kill you will think they do God a service? Think about it this way. What about our table of heroes in the 11th chapter of Romans? Now, some of the horrifying things, I was handing my wife a book as a result of this movie going on, and I wanted her to read it. There are sections of it that I will recommend she not read. It's quite a thick book, William Shearer's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. A lot of you have heard of that. Some of you may have read it. There are others about the face of the Third Reich, which takes every one of the main characters, including even such men as Speer, who, of course, went against Germany. Uh, I should say against Hitler, but for Germany, etc. And the one segment in there about the pogroms and what happened to the Jews during World War II and the Holocaust, and there are eyewitness testimonies and page after page of the mounds of, you know, the gold fillings and the baby shoes and the human hair and all the rest. It is a, it is a grotesque part of the book to read. All right, what about our table of heroes in the 11th chapter of Hebrews? Men and women, it said, who wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, being afflicted, of whom the world was not worthy. Why did God let them go through that? Why did Ezekiel have to lie on one side till his bones ached and nearly came through his flesh, till he had terrible bed sores for hundreds of days, and then turn over and lie out there on that pallet right in plain sight in the village streets as a sign to those people of the horrifying privation they were going to go through. Why did he have to dig a hole in the very wall through the huge stones and creep through it like a refugee with a little sack of clothing on his back? Why was he told to go and take a brand new linen ephod way out to a distant stream, dig into the ground, put it in there, and bury it? And he said, but Lord, if I do that, it'll spoil it. Nevertheless, do it. He dug it up again. It was all ruined. So shall Israel be. Israel is corrupt. Israel has been ruined and so on. Why did Isaiah have to walk around with his garment cut like that dream some of you men have had of showing up in public with only a pajama top on? The poor guy had to walk around with his rear end visible 
as a sign to other people of the horrifying conditions of frightened, squalling, fearful, terrified refugees. And he had to dress like a refugee with just a scrap of clothing on the upper half, with his bare buttocks visible, a man who should have been a prophet have all these, you know, banquets and all this aplomb, all this respect from people. But he had to go around with half his clothes missing instead as a sign to them. Why does the Bible say in Hebrews 11 that some of them were sawn asunder? I don't even want to dwell on that statement. I don't want to think about just where they started with the saw, and you don't either. But it happened to them. Why? Why did God allow these people to be martyred for their belief? Why did he put them through all that? Now, in our society, I say the answer to men like my friend out there, the retired Air Force general, there is no why. There is no answer. It doesn't make any sense. Corporations, military organizations eat up people just like so much material, like the proverbial joke about the huge machine into which is fed a two-ton Douglas fir, and with all the clanking and whirring and grinding, and about an hour later out the other end comes the product, a toothpick. And that's about the way some factories are in our society. They tend to devour people. They wear them out. They break them down. They use them up. And people give of their lives and their energy and their vigor and their viscera for years laboring on some unbelievably monotonous assembly line. And after they've done it all, They've worn out their liver and their heart. They've got flaccid, chalky, pasty white skin and varicose veins. They've probably got hemorrhoids with over half of the rest of the population. They've got night fits and sweats and worries. They've got at least one or two other registered chronic diseases. They've got all sorts of allergies. Half of their teeth or two-thirds of them are gone. Most of their hair has fallen out. They've got an unwanted line of yellow fat around their middle. Their breath comes short. They can't even enjoy skiing or running or basketball or tennis anymore. They've been laboring all their lives for this salary. And nobody ever stops to ask, why are they doing all that? And what have they got when they go home from the office party except a hangover the next morning and a little gold plate watch and the well wishes of a couple of hundred folks they've been working with for the last 30 years. When I go out in San Diego, I'm going to be able to visit with a very dear friend of mine. I made a decision which completely channeled his life, and I, I've always felt a kinship and a responsibility. He's a gentleman I called when we were both age 18, told him I was going to join the Navy, and he joined the Navy with me. I got out in four years, and he stayed in for over 20, and retired as a full lieutenant, having come up through the ranks. Well, he had a stroke. Now, of course, he did something about it. He was completely paralyzed on one side. His speech is very slow and hesitant, not like it used to be. It used to be fairly rapid. He speaks very slowly today, but I guarantee you I can't keep up with him because he lives in Del Mar, California, and every morning and every evening I think he runs something close to six miles plus, maybe close to ten, on the beach in the sand every day, seven days a week. He came up to the college many years ago, after he'd retired from the Navy, and we played a game of racquetball together. And after about the first ten minutes, he went over and put both hands against the wall and said, Ted, huff, 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 hold on a minute, and took some time out because he could scarcely breathe. And before that year was out, he had a stroke and nearly died because he had been in the service for all of those many years, of course. Well, now he's done something about it, and he's come a long way back from that. He's getting our literature. 
He reads the paper, he gets my letters, and he's going to come to the campaign when I'm there in San Diego, and I'll be able to play around round of golf with him and see him. I've known him, of course, since we were in the fifth grade. We, we virtually grew up. He lived about six or eight blocks from my house up in Eugene, Oregon. You know, he is a man who asks why, and he knows that I have been given something or that I understand some things that he doesn't. He really does. And he doesn't just like me because of our old friendship that goes way back. He is quite interested, and, and he's piqued, and he has his curiosity up a little bit about what I believe. And he has actually come to believe, I'm sure, a number of things that I do from the Bible. He is a person who is introspective about life, because any time you've had a bout with death, even Jerry Lewis is thinking that way now, you know. He had a double bypass, and he'd back up, and I think going to get married again. But he nearly died in a heart attack. And when you come that close to death, it does make you think, why am I here, and what have I been doing with my life, and where am I going to go? So to this day, in spite of the fact that my father has asked the question for decades, the question, why are we here, is still a valid question to the entirety of the world. Now, if we were to ask each other that question, let me draw you another couple of analogies of certain ways in which we might answer that question. But first, let's turn to a couple of scriptures to tell us what it's all about. You know these by heart, so I'll just turn to them quickly. Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh, Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne? Revelation 3.21 We know in the first chapter of Luke that Jesus Christ is going to, according to the prophecy given even before his birth, and I quote, He will inherit the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In Revelation 2.26 a profound scripture, one which is absolutely ignored and never quoted, and I doubt even if you went to a Sunday church to visit tomorrow and got a hold of the pastor on the phone ahead of time and asked him to expound and to explain for you in the sermon a, a scripture that you've been thinking about, that you would like to know more about. You don't want to lie about it and say you don't understand it. That would be lying because I think you do understand it. Revelation 2.26, ask him to expound it. What does the word overcoming mean? What do the works of Christ mean? What is the end and when it is going to come? And what does it mean, power over the nations, which nations, and when are you going to exercise that power? He that overcometh, said Jesus Christ anciently, and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give, not retirement, not the lazy old son that rolls around heaven all day, not a portfolio of harp music and ten million years to learn it all, but power over the nations. How many of you have been looking at Winds of War? I'd like to just take a little survey. How many have been looking at that? Well, good. Let me warn you a little bit that it's filled with errors. Historically, there are many glowing, glaring inaccuracies. There never was such a family as the Henrys, of course, and there never was any low-level commander, I'll guarantee you, that became a captain who enjoyed any kind of personal contact with all of those people. But there was a secret communication continually going back and forth between Roosevelt and Churchill, Churchill signing it, naval person, and you'll read of all of that if you read the book that I've urged people to read that is one of the most important of all time called A Man Called Intrepid and many of the other books that had to do with World War II history or Ultra Secret and some of the others. Roosevelt 
definitely did want America to come into the war. The histories have absolutely debunked the theory that Roosevelt was directly responsible for lining up the aircraft wingtip to wingtip at Clark Field in South of Manila in the Philippines, as well as, of course, in, uh, at Hickam Field in Honolulu, and that he kind of set it up because it's very plainly brought out in the book called uh, At Dawn We Slept that I've also recommended, a history book about that thick. That policy in Tokyo was not dictated from the cloakrooms of Washington, D.C. It didn't matter what Roosevelt did. There was no way that he was going to entice the Japanese over there by some Japanese farmer or plantation uh, uh, worker over in, in the uh, pineapple fields in Oahu. Tell him, by the way, the aircraft are lined up wingtip to wingtip. Why don't you come over and machine gun them all to bits? Never happened. If you read the book, At Dawn We Slept, you will get an incredible 30-year documentary of World War II history with some amazing parallels that are very instructive for us in this day. But as you watch that program, you do learn certain things. You learn, of course, of the pogroms, the racism, not only in Nazi Germany, but the incredible amount of racism inside the United States. They don't tell you anything about Henry Ford, but they do let you see little jokes and statements, and I was chided, by the way, for telling my little Jewish joke here the other day. Remember I talked about the old grandfather and so on? I had several people write in and took exception to that. My apologies for their lack of understanding. Uh, I have long since come to understand and to appreciate and to even find humor in the differences of human races. And I won't go into a big apologetic here about racism because I am not a racist no matter what anybody thinks. I do see peculiarities as well as... as uh, very glowing and uh, superb advantages of different races and racial characteristics. We think of the imperturbable or the bulldog stubborn British of the Savoir Faire, of the French, of the inscrutability of the Japanese, of the uh, almost uh, mechanization or what do I say, regimentation or military-like dogged uh, uh, attitude of the Germans. We think of Yankee ingenuity and creativity, etc. And there are certain characteristics of certain races. I think all of you know what to expect if you get into a cab and go from uh, the airport in Rome to the downtown hotel, maybe at Chelsea or someplace else. You're going to get the fright of your life. Uh, any of you who go to Mexico City and take a cab ride are going to have the same experience. So you know there are proclivities of certain races. But you know, if we were to look at exactly what is the problem with any given nation today, especially our own, and ask for a definition of power. Have you seen an ad recently from a state senator? I've forgotten his name already and don't even care to remember it because the man is, well, it's, it's so ridiculous. He, he said his ad goes something like this. I think the day is today when people are voting to see whether these guys are going back to the White House or not in certain districts. And they are, I think, congressmen. I believe he's a congressman. And he has been over in the Dallas area, some district over there, Fort Worth, Dallas, a Democrat. But now he switched sides and he wants to go back as a Republican. And his ad says something like this, you know, two years ago you sent me to the White House 
to solve the runaway problems of inflation. This is some low-level little congressman saying this in his, in his heavy accent, you know. And uh, to bring inflation under control and to stop joblessness and all this stuff, you know. And I went there and inflation is down by this much and there are new jobs coming. And he takes the credit for it. Here's this little unbeknown, you know, nobody, some congressman-level guy, trying to claim that they sent him off to Washington to do all that. And, you know, forget the, the Senate and forget the House and forget all the other people and Reagan and the Cabinet and the, the Feds and Volcker and IMF and everything else. This little guy did it all. So he said, you know, send me back and I'll, I'll even keep fighting for you and I need your confidence and on and on. You know, when I hear about some of these elections and then I see the power of a mayor or the power of a congressman or a state senator or I heard about you know, Mark White getting elected as governor of Texas, and I was a little chagrin and disappointed, although I really don't care because as I drive by these farms out there, very little is going to happen one way or the other. You know, uh, one crook is as good as any other crook that comes along in politics, no matter whether you're talking at the national level, the state level, or anywhere else, as far as that's concerned. And you really uh, wonder about some of these political statements you hear. But if you had a man who had the wisdom of a Job, and I should say the patience of a Job and the wisdom of a Solomon and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ who was at the reins of government in this society at this time, what could he accomplish? How much could he get done? Now, you know, Hitler was a dictator. And even though he was a fanatic and he made some obscenely stupid decisions, and we can say thank God that he did, that he was so misled, especially in attacking Russia, and in the middle of that campaign, what you don't know and what you won't ever learn in that movie, of course, is that he could have taken Stalingrad with that first army that surrounded Stalingrad. He could have taken it almost unopposed, but he had scattered his troops out along about a several hundred mile line up along the Don River. And you'll learn in the next issue of the IN about the name of the Don River and etc. And he had to separate the Hungarians, of course. Uh, from the Romanians by putting the Italians in between them. Most people don't know a lot of that history. And he had a conglomerate army there, but the tough ones were the Germans. And instead he delayed and tried to advance on all those fronts at the same time and gave them about one week during which time Stalingrad had enough additional Soviet troops committed, they were able to withstand the onslaught of the Germans. Winter came on, Stalingrad became the biggest defeat that Hitler had ever suffered. And at the same time, of course, Montgomery was sent to uh, Egypt, and of course the battle at El Alamein started, and very shortly thereafter, within a couple of weeks, the Allies landed at Oran and Casablanca in North Africa, and the Germans began to suffer defeat after defeat. But Hitler was a dictator, and he had absolute, unlimited power to do what really needed to be done, but because he was a satanic imbecile, and he was a pervert, and he was a fool, and he was a, a racist, and he was a, a demonic genius, but he was a very evil man. Most of what he did was evil. What if he'd have been right? What if he'd have been a good man? What if he'd have been a genius with a kind heart? What if he had been trained in the proverbial school of hard knocks, had seen a nation of struggling people, impoverished, soup lines, you know, four deep around the block, people of unemployment and no hope and a massive guilt complex and on and on, what if, instead of being Hitler, he'd have been David, let's say, with that kind of wisdom? 
Now, back to what I'm touching on. It doesn't really matter what kind of a man gets into the White House in Washington. He is fettered and hamstrung by the system. It doesn't matter what kind of a man these voters send to the Congress. He can do little, if anything. It doesn't matter what kind of a governor is down there in Austin. There is very little. A pick out of your memory, if you can, just a handful of things that are wrong with Tyler or Longview or Gladewater or Big Sandy. Whether it's the arson in Big Sandy, and some people think they know who's guilty of it, uh, all of the, the honky-tonks and the drug traffic and on and on. Whether it's uh, crime and murder and the criminal justice system in some of these courts around East Texas with people who were able to get off. Whether it's the jury verdict from Florida of Chagra the other day where that jury in a completely isolated state because of a change of venue were not allowed to hear that the man's brother had confessed in court that the two of them plotted to kill the judge and the man's brother has been put away in jail but because those 12 men and women, mostly women, weren't able to hear that, he's not guilty. His brother was guilty because the Texas court knew the two of them were tape recorded in plotting to kill the judge and his wife bought the 257 Magnum and the guy who went out and fired the shot is guilty and the guy is as guilty as sin, but because of the system, the jury is not allowed to hear facts that are absolutely cogent as to whether the man did it or whether the man didn't do it. But the system says you can't hear that. So they didn't know that. So they couldn't judge the case on whether or not they knew that because they didn't know it. Remember the man here in Tyler whose daughter was beat to death with the motorcycle chain that I told you about and the man walked because the appellate court down in Austin overturned the conviction because he went out and showed them the battered body over the objections of his attorney that's the system now I can point out several other things the Kitty Genovese case years ago in New York of course where I guess about 50 60 people looked out the apartment window and watched a rapist and a murderer come back and attack that woman about two or three times and stab her repeatedly screaming for help and none of them would get involved you can go on and on you can talk about drugs about recent television news here talking about prostitution absolutely ruining businesses along some of the major thoroughfares in Dallas about the chickens, they call them, the little children, the boys, of which there are literally hundreds of thousands in the United States, and more than 60,000 kids under the age of 14, boy prostitutes, on the streets of Beverly Hills and Hollywood, California, that inhabit certain cross streets where older middle-aged men, some of them corporate and businessmen, pick up boys and pay them for sexual favor. You can talk about any aspect of our society you'd like to talk about. But just flash it in your head real quickly. Think about society, about the economy, about crime, about drugs, about divorce, about one that is coming out now pretty soon about Without a Trace, which is a story they put to a movie which is depicting the incredible number of runaways. And there are, I guess, literally hundreds of thousands of children who disappear in these United States because parents don't know how to rear them, because no church in this nation is really teaching the right kind of child rearing except two or three, including the Mormons. They may have a lot wrong with them, but boy, they know how to, cheap, they know how to teach child rearing. 
And most parents aren't getting that kind of teaching, and therefore the parent-child relationship in this nation is just as sick as it can be, and you're going to probably see that kind of thing, and it'll be absolutely heartbreaking. So what I'm asking is, what's wrong with the country, and what needs to be changed? And if you wanted to go to work to try to do something about it, how far would you get under the constraints, under the law, under the system, the way it acts today? You know the mother who started MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, M-A-D-D? Now she's had a great success, but will she really solve the problem? No. They will take a problem this big and they will have the problem be about that big. And that means a number of lives saved. But will she or any other group of a million like her be able to absolutely, once and for all, keep drunk drivers off America's roads? The answer is no. Now let's ask some questions about this, verse 26. You know as well as I do that our proverbial Protestant pastor will not stand up in the pulpit and expound and explain that verse. He doesn't believe it. He's afraid of it. He doesn't know what it means. And he won't be able to ask, what does it mean to overcome? Overcome what? What are the weapons and the tools? What are the guidelines? What kind of, of quality of character is necessary to overcome? Then if you ask him, what does it mean to keep Christ's works unto the end? What were his works? What is it you keep and observe and do? I could turn right quickly to Luke 22, 19. This do as I have done unto you about the Passover. We're going to read very shortly in the next couple of months. Ask him, why don't you do that? And he'll have an excuse. To him, to that individual, who is overcoming himself and the devil and the world around him, who is keeping the works of Christ and living the life that Jesus emulated and allowing Christ to live that life over again within him, to him I will give power over the nations, plural. Boy, would I love that. I'd love to have the power over the city of Tyler, unlimited, godlike power for just one week. If you want to have a, an interesting trip sometime, I suggest the following. Sometime, just for the fun of it, if you're coming to church, you people that live over in the Longview area, come in as far as the first block or so the other side of Channel 7 and turn straight toward downtown until you run into Commerce Street. And then just get off the beaten path where you can just drive on the main street there and just drive around a little bit right up in there. I've done that three or four times because there's an old lamp place up there near Channel 7 on I'm doing a TV program. I had to get some lamp work done up there and I've come back to the office that route to drive through town or to go to lunch or whatever. It's amazing. Well, I could go on and on about crime. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Carnes had the man right next door to them, I think I've mentioned that before, uh, come home and wonder why the garage door was open, walk in his own garage. A young black man stuck a pistol to his head and said, get out on the floor. He thought he was dead. And they have their vans and they have their two-way walkie-talkies and they drop off a couple of people, not just because they're black, but because they're criminals. doesn't matter whether they're black or white. You know, if a criminal is a criminal, doesn't matter what color he is. I'm just saying they happen to be, and they're cruising this area with a van. They drop off the people, and they are experts. They grab the sheet off the bed, lay it down in the garage, run almost at a pace. They know exactly where the sideboards are, 
where the cupboards and the cabinets are, look under the mattress, under the pillow, in the bedside stand, under the bed, in the closet, find out where the attic is, pick your head up and look, because that's where the gentleman of the house will always hide his guns. And in moments they'll get guns, watches, cutlery, silver, vases, everything of value including stereos and TV sets. Hustle in the back end of a van and be gone in less than ten minutes and your whole house has been robbed. Now if you read the robbery sheet in Tyler alone, you know that if you lived inside the city limits, your chances are extremely good of being burglarized and you'd better pray if you are burglarized that you never either A, wake up in the middle of the night while they're in a house, or B, come home and find them in there. Because, boy, that could be rough. If they get scared, they may kill you. Now, when God says to us, when Jesus Christ of Nazareth says that he is going to give us power over the nations, why? What's wrong with all these wonderful nations out here? What was wrong with Germany? What was wrong as you wade through the situation of seeing this elderly Jewish gentleman who had labored and worked all of his life? We can get all antagonistic and say, well, he was a Jew, so he didn't deserve it. Nonsense. If he worked, if he succeeded, if he had a certain amount of genius, he deserved it. The beautiful home they show. That's true. That happened. Those people had their homes taken away. They had laws by corrupt courts that deliberately were Nazi courts that actually passed laws that made it illegal for the Jews to own property. First, they had to wear the yellow armband, Judah, with the yellow star of David. Eventually, they were tattooed and put in the camps like cattle. And you'll see probably some more of it before it's all over. I would tell you, don't read the book called Hitler's Ovens. Don't ever read that. Don't read that one main chapter two-thirds of the way through, The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer, because you won't keep your food down and your nights will bother you for a couple of decades. You'll never erase it out of your mind. You ask what is wrong with nations. If you could be in Cambodia and you could know that since 1975 more than one million human beings have been deliberately killed in that nation by the communists. If you could be inside El Salvador, right down to our south, and know that marauding gangs of these Sandinistas and others who want to overthrow the government have been machine-gunning babies and children, and see it with your own eyes. It's not enough just to see the bodies unearthed from the shallow grave of American nuns. That was an outrage to the Catholic Church, so everybody gets upset about it. What about the civilian population of that nation itself? What's happening today in Afghanistan? How's it going today over there between Iraq and Iran as we sit here nice and comfortable in this beautiful room in Tyler, Texas? What's going on right down here on the top floor of the main big building there across the square, you know, from the big skyscraper where the jail is here in, in Tyler, Texas? What's going on down there? How do they treat those people? Who are they? How do they get in there? What's the whole saga of life that results in that? You ever visit a prison? Jesus says of us, I was in prison, you visited me not. One of the most revolting experiences I've ever had in my life was going to a prison in California, both a men's prison and a women's prison, and sitting there and listening to these people justify everything they did, including a little lady who had knifed to death her own three children. You know, you had a hard time not trying to like the person and want her out of there and want her to repent of what she'd done and realize she is a life who destroyed the seed of her own body. But nevertheless, 
you did begin to wonder about the system. And because of our system, have you been keeping up with the news lately about the crowded Texas prisons? Did you see the pictures of the wooden and the tent barracks they live in, just like World War II army bases, where they have maybe six or eight men together? I could tell you stories that would curl your hair, and you don't want to hear them. That does not instill repentance. Instead of restitution, instead of going out and working to help the person from whom you stole, which God says is the punishment, instead of exactly according to the law of God, which would have precluded the building of a single prison, there was never such a thing as incarceration in ancient Israel. Do you realize that? They never built a jail. There were cities of refuge, for hom not for homicide, but for... Uh, for, uh, you know, uh, what is the word, anyway, for accidental death. And they don't call it, uh, yeah, manslaughter, for, you know, involuntary. They call it involuntary manslaughter. Uh, there would be a city of refuge to which a person could go. And they had to live there the rest of their life. If they ever got in their nose outside, then the person who was wronged would have a chance at them. But that's the only way they could. They couldn't invade that city of refuge. But there was never a jail built in ancient Israel. Do you know how many billions and billions of tax dollars are lost because of the futility of a prison system? Now, you could go on like this for hours, but that's enough. Notice in verse 27 of Revelation 2. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now, you know, they called Bismarck the Iron Chancellor. And Hitler came in after Bismarck, and Hitler did rule with a rod of iron, but for evil, not for good. Mussolini ruled with a rod of iron. And to this day, if you go over there, some of the tour guides will show you the great big autostrada, as they call them, or autopista in the Spanish, which is a, an autobahn in German. Show you the big apartment complexes. Even the huge, big, one of the most impressive monuments in Italy is the great big monument to Vittorio Emanuele, which is their last king, that is this kind of a semicircle. They showed it once with the huge chariots and the winged victory and the dozen horses charging off on the top of it, you know, with about 200 stairs leading up to it. Beautiful, breathtaking thing. The traffic flows all around. It's not too terribly far away from the Colosseum. Mussolini built that, they tell you. They take you through the city proudly. Mussolini built that. Mussolini built this. And it was good under Mussolini. And today, in Germany, some of the older generation will tell you, well, it wasn't like this under Hitler, you know. All this chaos and these young people running around and these attacks and this crime, this drug business, and Danny the Red, the Bader Meinhof gang. Uh, Hitler would have known how to take care of them. Then we had order. They'll tell you that. Dictators are evil, cruel people. But you are studying to be one. Not evil and cruel. Good. Beneficent. Generous. Forgiving understanding and kind and yet so powerful that you know there is a time when some people deserve to die. There is a time when a slap on the wrist won't get the job done. How are you going to know when that time is, when some of you will not even control your own children the way you should? How are we going to know if we can't solve and handle interpersonal problems in the church or personnel problems on the job, or man-wife and husband and, and wife problems, or, or daughter-mother or father-son or what have you, little problems without going to the Word of God and using wisdom, but, but handling them emotionally, flying off the handle, getting hurt, 
saying, you hurt my feelings and I'm mad at you, whatever it is we do, all these human little nuances of emotional, irrational, uh, untrained, irresponsible, juvenile human behavior, we fall into the behavioral patterns of self-hurt, of, of feeling self-pity, of wanting to get back at someone else. Woe be unto the city of Tyler if a spiteful, hateful, shriveled up little personality of some sort was given the very power of God and an iron rod in their hand. It's okay, you got Tyler for a week. Man, I, I'm fleeing. I'm going. I want to get as far away from Tyler for that week as I can get. But now if a man like David, just after he got up from that prayer, you know, Father, search me and try me and see if there be any evil thing in me. And how after I was afflicted, then I taught sinners thy way. At a moment when David was so close to God, like in the 51st Psalm, when he said, Purge me with hyssop and, and just cleanse me and give me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me, O Lord. Boy, I'd want David, right at that moment of his life, looking back at his own inadequacies, looking back at his own sins, looking back at his own mistakes, considering himself, lest he also be tempted, I'd want him to deal with me, want him to handle a city like Tyler. If you were to go through, and I won't take time to do it, through all of these scriptures that show the way the world is going to look, let me just go to one. i got a whole batch of them here from the Old Testament. I'll give you a few of them maybe, but let's go to Revelation, the 18th chapter. Now, this actually is the final great day of the Lord coming upon the beast power. This is after the tribulation. This is after the United States of America and all of the Commonwealth countries have been completely devastated by a nuclear blow, after the new Holocaust has taken place, after perhaps only 10% of the Dutch and the Belgians and the Danes and the British and the Americans and the Norwegians and, of course, the Australians and the people of New Zealand and Great Britain and South Africa remain. Now all Europe is being ravaged by World War III, and Babylon is falling, and Babylon is nothing more than the city of Rome, and the city which represents the great beast power. Chapter 18, the angel comes down having great power, the earth lightened with his glory, in verse 1, and he cried mightily with a great voice, strong voice, saying, Babylon the Great, remember Babylon the Great originally fell in about 538, 539 B.C., and this was not written until about 91 or 92 A.D., and it is a prophecy for the future, so the future great Babylon is nothing more than the European combine. Is fallen, is fallen, showing it is a modern uh, destruction of that system, and has become the habitation of demons, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird, just like some demoniacal death dance is being done as the bombs are falling and millions are dying in Europe. All nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That is a biblical description of nothing more than some of the things you're seeing in that series of herding people by the thousands into huge open pits and machine gunning them into so much bloody flesh. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich. If you noticed in the story, and that part of it was true, 
Gelling, you know, had his Karen Hall. Well, Karen was the young girl that he took and married, and I forget whether he killed her or had her poisoned or what, and he wept over her. Well, he, he took this huge, big palatial estate. It literally was in the middle of a forest not too many miles from Berlin, and it even had stags there, and it had a game fence around it. Giant, gorgeous, fabulous building. That man stole Europe blind. Train loads of some of the most fabulous paintings that a human hand has ever created were stolen by that man from nations all over Europe. I mean, if you were to see, let's say, a chalice out of solid gold about this big, with hand-done figures and grape leaves and so on all over it, just glittering, and you were to be told that thing is solid gold, what would you guess that's worth today? Well, if it were an, a museum piece, going back to like it were a gift from Henry IV to the Pope or something like that, then of course it's priceless. You can't even put a price tag on it. But if you could go down here and buy it in a store, you'd have to begin up into the hundreds of thousands before you even, you know, began the bid. And you're probably dealing with a million or more dollars. That man robbed and stole Europe blind. Gold and silver, bullion, coins, paintings, furniture, objects of art, some of the greatest sculptures in the world. He had them stashed. He had them in crates in the basement of the place. Finally, when some of that was liberated at the end of World War II, many of those priceless works of art were restored to the museums and the fine old homes from which they came. But most of them were never returned. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, and be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. And then notice in verse 7 how much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. Does that call to mind some of the great balls? And the absolute incongruity. That's what comes home to me. People are out here butchering other human beings. A meeting can take place between Hitler and Goebbels walking along outside, while inside you hear a Strauss waltz. He's giving the final permission to begin the pogroms and exterminate six million people. After he gives that word, it's all set, we've got the machinery going, we've got the special people, 3,000 of them, specially trained, we've got the gas bands to gas them while we drive along, we've got the ovens heated up in Buchenwald, we've got Auschwitz and Dachau and Belsen and all the others ready to go. Fine, now let's go in and have a drink. Reward her as she rewarded you, double under her, verse 6, double according to her works, in the cup which she has filled, fill to her double, how much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow, and that's of course the great fallen whore with her little daughters that came out in protest, the mother church and the fatherland and shall see no sorrow, therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Death and mourning and famine, she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, who were part of that trading combine and took part in the plundering of other nations, shall bewail her and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off with the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is your judgment come. Now notice what it says in verse 11. The merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn because nobody buys their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones. Is anything more beautiful? If you've ever been to England and you go into the tower and you see the crown jewels, 
is that or is that not a breathtaking experience? Any of you seen the crown jewels of, of England? Yeah, you, Alan, I know. Well, you know, that the, the star of Africa must be that big around, isn't it, Ian? I mean, that one huge big diamond. And it came from a bigger raw stone. You imagine a diamond is literally as big as a goose egg, and the diamond on the orb, the staff that Queen Elizabeth held when she was, was uh, coronated, and the diamond in the crown that she wore, I mean, it just... Well, it is the wealth. It's like the bank account of a nation. And basically, it is priceless. I mean, hundreds upon hundreds of billions of dollars could never replace that type of thing. So really, deal with this in real terms. You're looking at the plunder and the wealth of the world, and they're just mourning over the loss of all of this. Pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, fine wood, manners of vessels of ivory, all manner of vessels of the most precious wood. Is anything prettier than about a dozen different kinds of wood in a gorgeous table that you almost see through because of the finish? and brass and iron and marble. And notice the macabre part of this. Cinnamon, odors, ointments, frankincense, wine, oil, flour, wheat, and beasts. That's the staples of trade. That's hides and sheep and linseed oil and wool and beef and so on. And horses and chariots and slaves and the souls, or it is the souquet, of men. They trade in human beings. They traffic in slavery as well. And the fruits that that's thy soul lusted thereafter or after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and you shall find them no more at all. Now, to bring this to a close quickly, if I were to read to you all the descriptions of what happens in Zechariah 14.4 by the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, has there been a scene that Hollywood ever created have you ever been in a place or at a time where you have seen anything with which your mind could compare the scene that will appear to the returning conquering Christ and to the resurrected and the living saints at that time? If you can imagine some of the old documentary films you saw of post-World War II 1945, maybe about September, November of that year, when the snow began to fall on the cities of Essen and Mainz and Wuppertal and Koblenz and, of course, up in Berlin itself, some of them 80, 90 percent destroyed, with only a few hulks and burnt-out buildings here and there and the rest just so much smoking, twisted, rubble, ruined transportation, strangled, choked water supply, twist conduit, pipes, wire, asphalt, concrete, shattered glass, shattered rail, bombed roads, bridges, collapsed in the rivers, just nothing. No water supply, no civil services, no organization, nothing but like a, a lunar landscape of absolute destruction and twisted girders and rubble where big buildings used to stand. Just take that and extend that from New York to Los Angeles and extend that from northern Scotland to Land's End in England and all over Europe and around the whole entirety of God's good green earth here below on this planet. And imagine a planet whose waters have turned to blood, more than two-thirds of the human population gone, more than 90% of the population of the na nations of Israel dead, 10% standing around in rags like Isaiah with half a garment on, with nicks and cuts and bruises, looking emaciated like the starving, sunken-eyed refugees coming out of Auschwitz when their GI benefactors found them lying there stacked six deep on those wooden tiers. This is the kind of a world that is going to greet your eyes 
at the moment of the greatest rejoicing in your life. The surprise, the shock we will experience when we discover, what do you know? I made it. Some of you are going to experience that feeling because we have just that much little human doubt that at the time Jesus Christ comes and that instantaneous change happens, will it feel like an electrical jolt? Will it feel like some ethereal being caught away, like someone struck us a blow and we look around and suddenly we're no longer flesh but glowing as with translucent energy and just a kind of a gold-like, ivory-like shine to our being and visage and we discover we can put one arm through the other one and we can walk through a concrete block and we've been changed into a spirit being? What will view our eyes? What will we see at that time? but bloated bodies and croaking birds and black pudding-like water, which is blood that is soured and turned black and begun to waste away. What will we see but rubble and twisted ruins and death and destruction and whimpering, crying refugees? The day that Jesus Christ of Nazareth returns is a day of great destruction. Then what's next? What happens the instant you experience that fantastic change? Work. The most incredible challenge, the most incredible kind of work, of rebuilding, of organization. I want to turn to one closing scripture, and I've cost myself about a dozen because of getting carried away with all my descriptions here today. But let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 in concluding here and show you perhaps a little bit of a picture of what the ultimate change is going to be like. As in Adam all die, verse 22, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits of the dead, which he is called, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. You see, God is going to make this little space capsule called earth with its envelope of air, his headquarters. God is moving heaven. God the Father is coming down here. He wants a place prepared for him. Christ is going to precede him by about 1,100 plus years. Eventually, as we see at the end of the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, the, the throne of the Lamb and of God the Father are going to be in it, in the earth. And this will be heaven. And that great Father of Jesus Christ is not going to set his righteous and holy foot whether it's spot or blemish or any other evil thing. It will be perfect by the time he gets here, but it's going to take more than 1,100 years to make it perfect after the destruction that will visit the eyes of Jesus Christ upon his second coming. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. What will reign for a thousand years? Death will. At the end of a thousand years, as we learn at the last great day every year, Satan the devil will be released for a little period of time. And it says, verse 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. What kind of a shout of joy, what kind of a resounding cheer would go up in this little room here in Tyler, Texas, if I could tell you right now today that Almighty God has announced that right now, today, as of 10 o'clock this morning, He destroyed death. None of you ever have to die. 
I'm not kidding, you know, but I mean, we couldn't even begin to display the emotion. We'd have the biggest party you ever saw. We'd probably break up the furniture. We'd be so ecstatic. I mean, people would be trying to climb the, the, the fireplace over there. You mean I don't have to die? I don't have to look out the door and see all those plastic flowers over there and wonder which one they're going to put me under? That would be the most incredible language you could ever hear. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things that are put under him, it is manifest that he is exempted or accepted, which did put all things under him. And then, of course, at the end of that chapter, he tells them to be steadfast and unmovable and abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain with the Lord. Jesus Christ of Nazareth and his message are as foreign to this world as... I don't know. I mean, you could come up with the most far-out, weird story from outer space, some adjunct to Star Wars, and try to tell the people in this society that's what is really in store for you, and they would believe you just about as willingly and as readily as the picture that I have tried to portray here today. Christian retirement is what they believe in. They get all ecstatic and all bubbly like a little baby being burped after a pablum breakfast over their oft-repeated statements about Jesus and loving the Lord. They don't have the faintest idea who he is, what he looked like, why he came, what was his message, what happened to him, what he underwent, the actual chronology of the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, what kind of a Lord is he, what's going to happen, is he going to come again? Could you imagine a lot of powdered, blue-haired, corseted little old ladies in a local Baptist church seeing Jesus Christ actively driving the money changers out of the temple? Can you imagine what they would think? Can you imagine seeing Jesus Christ coming back, grabbing those evil, rotten, corrupt, I don't have words for them, beast and the false prophet, when I know what they're going to do. I mean, they're going to make Hitler look like an amateur. The calling that Almighty God has for his people, if you were to ask that astronaut in the capsule, he'd have a different story to give you if he were converted. Now, if I ask you, just to put it all in a nutshell for you, what are you doing here today? We could say, we could put it this way, look, I am a specialist. I have been called for a unique priceless purpose. I am attending a almost secret meeting that has been hidden from the minds of millions of people who know nothing about what I'm doing, what I believe, why I go there, what I'm being taught, what is in my mind or my heart. I'm there to get just a little more. I'm there to maintain what I already know, to be reminded of it so I don't forget. I'm there to have a little bit added to me each day, just as much as a little bit of exercise and a little bit of food adds to my physical life and extends it out for one more day. I'm there to be nourished and fed. I'm there to learn, and I'm there to be corrected and to grow in grace and knowledge because I'm learning to be an expert at judging people, at knowing how to make decisions, knowing who needs to die and who needs to be spared alive, and who needs to be forgiven and who needs to be severely punished. That's why I'm there. And every time we come to the Sabbath service, if we could think a little bit about why we're doing it and what it's all about and why we are sitting here and enjoying this experience together, then I think that our conversation, I think the way we feel about each other, I think the way we feel while we're being here in the song service, whatever it's not going to be just routine. It's not just another Sabbath, you know, let's just get it over with and go out and do whatever we're going to do tonight. And, and just kind of be bored with each other and go through a little routine, but it'll be a very, very special occasion. <laughs>